Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least, uh, Hip Days. You know, we usually record on the weeknights, but it's a sunny Saturday morning right now. Kind of ironic for the gore fest we're going to be getting into today, but appropriate to switch things up for an unprecedented episode, a guest that changed their mind. Welcome back to the show, Austin from Central Cinema. How's it going, dude? Uh, it's going good. I'm glad to be back. Wow, cat is invading as soon as we start. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, changed my mind. I thought Terror Train was the best horror movie of all time. I was wrong. It's actually wow. the beyond. Okay, dude. This guy's got a movie. <laughs> so today we're talking about a movie first released in the U.S. as the anglicized Seven Doors of Death, directed by Lewis Fuller. <laughs> but people probably know it best as The Beyond, directed by Lucio Fulci. This is a really great one. And like we said, you've been on the show before, so we've talked about your history with horror in general. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your history and interest in Italian horror specifically? You know, does it extend to other directors besides Fulci? Is it something that you're just like, this one stands out? So it definitely starts with Fulci. Let's see. Night of the Living Dead is what I attribute as like my first, what really got me into the genre of horror in general, not just zombie movies or that type. So I saw that and then immediately sought out Dawn of the Dead. Loved it. I mean, like anybody, it's one of the best of all time uh, yeah high bar and then shockingly I, not picked for the show yet I, I mean the remake has been done but it's really oh, shocking wild. to me that the uh, original dawn of the dead hasn't been picked yet yeah it, you gotta maybe maybe somebody's just uh saving it so i saw dawn of the dead was awesome and then probably probably not long after that i sought out fulci's zombie or zombie two or uh zombie flesh eaters right. <laughs> depending it choose your pick whichever it had been kind of hyped to like being oh this is one of the best uh, uh just it was one, considered one of the great zombie movies so i, I watched it and I, I was probably i was in high school snotty little kid and i was like <laughs> this isn't dawn of the dead this is trash which <laughs> no it is trash but it, it, my opinion has completely gone 180 on fulci and and zombie since then but i hated it did not get it at all. And then sometime in college, I saw House by the Cemetery and had a similar reaction. I don't know if you've <laughs> seen that seen that movie. Not yet. No. And it mainly because there's a there's some voice acting in it from the dubbing that is just atrocious and yeah. you kinda either love or hate it. And it's like much worse than just like the normal average <laughs> Italian voice dubbing. Wow. And that's saying something. So seeing that one didn't really help me either. But then I saw the Beyond, and I think I liked it from the start. It's just kind of, it's got really good gore effects, kind of an interesting premise, and it probably, I don't know that I fully loved it at first, but it was enough to get get the hook in, and then I was able to go back and kind of reevaluate Zombie, and then eventually House by the Cemetery, still kind of working on it. It's <laughs> it's fun, but it, it it's a little tougher than some of the others, but Fulci and Argento, I mean, they're two pretty different directors, but they really got their hooks in me with Italian horror and Italian cinema in general. There's a lot of cool stuff that's not just horror. Yeah. Like the, yeah, the Polizio Teshi uh, yeah, movies and everything. Yeah, those are, those are a lot of fun. Just really wild filmmaking in general, like illegal street filming type <laughs> stuff. And stuff you don't see, especially nowadays at all. But, uh, yeah, he, I, I would not have expected at the time that I like him as much as I do now because I, I do consider Fulci, if not my favorite horror director, one of them. Wow, really hard to say. Sure, could change any day. Yeah, it, just depending <laughs> on the depending on the day and what I'm into is who the favorite is. Yeah, I really like this movie. I also love zombies. Zombie was definitely the first one that I was exposed to as well. Similar path in terms of just being like, well, I love the Romero movies, so time to expand into zombie because that is, uh, for people who don't know, promoted as a sequel to Dawn of the Dead, even though it's uh, not actually tied to it in any fashion. Yeah, that's another thing that's fun about Italian movies is, I mean, people complain about originality in Hollywood nowadays, but <laughs> Back in the 70s, it was like, 
any given day there was a some ripoff of a Hollywood blockbuster coming out <laughs> that looked like it was made with duct tape and spit and it it's just a it's a great grab bag of of movies oh yeah definitely is and uh that one in particular you know there's uh the underwater zombie versus shark fight that is <laughs> i've never i've truly never seen anything like it and you got your classic fulci eye gouging and shit it's it's a real gem and i think it is a really good sort of stepping stone into Italian horror and what it can kind of be. Uh, I think it's very emblematic of a lot of the good things and bad things of it. And yeah, I, I think Argento, like you said, they're very different, but he's really great as well. Deep Red slash Profondo Rosso is one of my favorite horror movies, period. So so there really is a lot to offer from there. Although this is shockingly just our second Italian movie besides Cemetery Man, if you don't count the Suspiria remake. I still have not seen Cemetery Man. I've heard amazing things and it's unfortunately not the easiest to find. I think there's youtube stream available yeah. or something yeah it, it is fun uh i definitely recommend it to people who haven't checked it out hey best horror movie ever made <laughs> i've heard <laughs> <laughs> but the heyday of giallo movies is considered to be 1968 through 1978 and fulci is a part of that with some gems like don't torture a duckling but it's interesting that it's not until the moral panic and the video nasties controversy at the end of that decade slash the beginning of the 80s with the resultant pendulum swing of interest in exploitation movies that Mario Bava, Dario Argento, and Fulci himself saw some of that international success with more traditional horror movies like Zombie 2 in 79 and this movie in 81. Yeah, I think Zombie was a huge hit. Yeah, yeah, it was. And it, I think even rumored that it might have made more than Dawn of the Dead, which is crazy. <laughs> that is wild. It's got a lot going for it, though. And Fulci himself is a very interesting guy. At one point, he was a medical student, which, in my opinion, helps to explain his fascination with the squishy bits. <laughs> but then even then, like you said, when he got in the film industry, he wasn't just immediately going for horror movies. You know, he started in comedies and stuff. So it is kind of a funny path for him to wind up as this intensely dark, hard to watch eye trauma specialist <laughs> in horror. He's also not great with English, so he had to do a lot of directing by mime, and is famously mysterious and moody, although he had a lot of illness and death in the family that messed him up, and so that's kind of what a lot of people attribute the moodiness to, and also part of the just sort of decline into dark horror is just based on the fact that he had a lot of fucked up shit going on in his life. Yeah, a lot of his stuff is really bleak. Specifically, uh, The Beyond is, has a very bleak <laughs> ending and outlook. Yeah, and... Part of this mysterious nature is also his unstoppable flights of fancy. Larry Ray, who is a member of the Louisiana Film Commission, who became a production assistant on this movie and helped as a translator, recalled an example where while setting up for a scene, Fulci had a tantrum about wanting some ice cream. And <laughs> the lights were set, the actors were ready, but Fulci refused to shoot until he had his ice cream. And so they indeed sent someone out to get it. And then they got back and he was pissed because it showed up melty because of the Louisiana heat. <laughs> I also thought it was funny when I was beginning my research and like just Googling this movie. One of the related questions that shows up at the top of the page is, is the beyond based on a true story? <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> it was just, it's so funny because it, this movie is both famous for and full to bursting with dream logic. It is so soft around the edges. It is nebulous in a really interesting way. And it's, it's a difficult movie to spoil the plot of. So as an indicator of just how dreamlike this movie is, I'll set it up as revolving around a doorway to hell located in a basement of a hotel in Louisiana, a state where there are no basements because of sea level. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say it's a true story in that somebody has probably inherited a hotel before. <laughs> yeah, great point. Great point. But I think this does a really cool job of creating an environment where you're accepting of things you wouldn't uh, expect to find there, but are grounded, like a, a hotel having a basement. You wouldn't expect that in New Orleans, but fine. And then this creates a path to accepting the more fantastical elements as well, like the door itself and the things that happen after it opens. Even the Fabio Frizzi soundtrack, which is absolutely top-notch, plays into this with three separate tracks— 
I'm Austin's holding up an incredible vinyl of the Beyond soundtrack. It's beautiful. Before before you get any further, at Central Cinema a few years ago, we, Fabio Fritzi and his band came through and did a live scoring of the Beyond. Wow! And it, probably that screening was what really cemented it as like, holy shit, this movie rocks. <laughs> And I was like, I think I was front row. And so they're, it's a very small theater. So they're just like sitting feet in front of me. And they did, they did an opening set of just kind of different, different songs he had composed. Cause he, he also did the music for zombie, I believe. And I yep. uh, can't, can't recall what else at the moment. Frequent collaborators. Yeah. But during, during the set, their laptop, one of their laptops that they had doing some kind of processing i guess was precariously propped up right in front of me and it toppled over mid-set and like (laughs) and like shut down and then i kind of made eye contact with fabio and he just kind of shrugged like like and kept playing his music and it was super cool (laughs) oh yeah fuck it we'll do it live it is great though i mean the soundtrack is really fantastic and it does play into that dreamlike nature because there are three separate tracks all with different runtimes and the different sound, all named uh, Voci Dal Nulla, or Voices from Nowhere. So <laughs> it's truly like, hey, you want to listen to the Voices from the Void uh, track? Sure, which one? <laughs> it's something I forgot to say up top, the the music in all of these Italian movies is probably one of the better gateways to get into them, because yeah. they're, they're just awesome. Very, like, prog-type rock. Yeah, a lot of synth going on. Just, just really cool stuff that you don't really hear in other movies from that time. Yeah, I mean, Goblin, famous for a great reason. You know, they absolutely kill it on Profondo Rosso and, and similar movies. You know, Suspiria, everyone knows as well. The witch, witch. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's great shit. It's really great. Fulci himself said about the dreamlike nature of it, People who blame the Beyond for its lack of story have not understood that it's a film of images, which must be received without any reflection. Any idiot can understand Molinaro's La Caja Faux, or even Carpenter's Escape from New York, while the Beyond, or Argento's Inferno, are absolute films. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny to me because, first of all, I miss the days of filmmakers just kind of smack-talking each other like that. But also, it certainly is a film of images. You know, we'll describe it here, but this to me is one of the movies where it's like you really have to see it for yourself. Yeah, it, it, these these movies are very visually striking. What they don't always have in plot, they'll make up for in, in the cinematography and the colors and images on the screen and the violence. And they're just really cool. Yeah. And the dream logic does make sense when you consider the state of the script, which was uh, negligible, to put it politely. (laughs) Fulci was kind of just operating off vibes, you know? (laughs) As has happened many times with things as famous as Friday the 13th, even, Fabrizio De Angelis, the film's producer, started selling the movie with just an idea and a poster. Due to the aforementioned cultural interest in these sorts of movies as the video nasties controversy was happening, this wasn't really a barrier to sale, and so he quickly called Dardano Sacchetti to write a quote-unquote script, I'm doing huge finger (laughs) finger quotes here, that was really more of an outline based off some death sequences that Fulci had in mind, and the themes of life suffering, being born condemned to death, and blinding yourself through exposure to its sinister immoralities. You may get into this later, but Fulci was also a, a Catholic. Yes. Which can be, I mean, <laughs> famously self-hating people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting, too, because he was a lifelong Catholic. He called himself that for his entire life. But there were some interesting like anti-Catholic <laughs> imagery that would definitely pop up in things like Don't Torture a Duckling. So it, it is kind of an interesting self-loathing going on there. Fulci specifically was one of the more brutal his movies are a little more brutal than than the other italian movies definitely so and you know these this outline didn't lead to an actual shooting script so there were new ideas and scenes being dreamed up on the spot by fulci and company which leads to a real disjointed surrealism but here's the thing that i really like about this movie is that despite the disjointed feeling 
it's still held together by the hotel location and the book of Avon to bring us back. No matter how out there the scenes can get, we wind up coming back to the central location as a way to reground ourselves. I like I really like that as a tool. Yeah, the hotel makes for a great setting. It's almost a character itself <laughs> if you really think about it. <laughs> it's uh it's set in Louisiana and it's actually filmed there too, right? Right. There and, and Rome, yeah, they did a lot of kind of jumping back and forth. Or not even. They they filmed in Louisiana and then went back to Rome and did match shots, basically. It, it always adds a lot to a movie when there's like a, a visual location and not just, oh, it's Toronto as L.A. again. <laughs> yeah, right. Little New York, they call it. <laughs> uh, our star is British actress uh, Catriona McCall, who stars in the whole Gates of Hell trilogy that included City of the Living Dead the year before and The House by the Cemetery, which you mentioned also in 1981. Larry Ray who I mentioned before, is also a pretty interesting guy. He's done some cool interviews about the behind-the-scenes stuff, and after helping with the film commission, he got them extras and locations and whatnot. They asked him if he wanted to do a little scene, too. And he was like, sure, that sounds fun. And then it turns out the little scene involved falling from an eight-meter-high scaffolding platform. (laughs) No big deal. (laughs) No big deal. He had to hit the bust bag, which is a rapidly deflating stunt bag. But what he said the really difficult part was shooting the cut-in shot where he had to do several takes of jumping from the third step of a ladder, actually hitting the ground, and also biting the blood capsule at the right time to create the effect of it running out. (laughs) So he's just throwing himself from three steps up constantly. Sounds painful. (laughs) We thank him for it. Yes. He also said, and this is a quote here, I'm also in the scene with the spiders. There were some real ones mixed in with it, with some electrically operated, very realistic-looking fake ones. That's his opinion on that they're very realistic-looking. <laughs> when Michelle Mirabella, the guy who plays the architect, saw the real ones coming out of their boxes, he categorically refused to shoot the close-ups and refused to be near them. Then I was asked, hey, Larry, are you afraid of spiders? <laughs> <laughs> and I said that I was not, and Maurizio Trani, the wonderful makeup artist, who, yes, incredible, does amazing, amazing work with the gore in this movie, you know, it's kind of interesting because it is fake looking, but in a way that, like, invites you to really look at it and get grossed out. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it really lingers on it. Mm-hmm. That was my main takeaway this time, that a few of the main gags just really, like, you're like, okay, it I think this is about to end, and then it like goes on for another 30 seconds, and it's just like, man, this is kind of painful to look at. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And so, yeah, he, Maurizio Trani put the three days beard on this guy, and he said, I had a lot of fun shooting that scene, which is cropped from my nose down to my chest with spiders crawling up onto my chin. Incidentally, there were special spider handlers who were able to make the live tarantulas turn right or left as they crawled up towards my face by blowing on them through long straws just out of camera. There you go. Thanks, Larry. (laughs) Now, like you say, the hotel was shot in New Orleans at the Otis House, a historical home that belonged to the state with priceless original furnishings. And so in order to make it look even older, the Italians said, let's spray the house with dyed water. (laughs) (laughs) And the state officials were like, "Uh, okay. But then, for some reason that Larry Ray was unable to elucidate on, they started scratching up the floor with cement and sand as well. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And the state freaked out. They were holding Larry himself responsible as the one who convinced them to let the Italians use it until finally a producer agreed to send them money for restoration. So it did work out okay, but they were not too concerned about the state of the house. Yeah, that that hotel looks like trash. (laughs) (laughs) Now, they also got them to shut down one of the parallel bridges of the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway for almost two hours, which is unheard of. They're 24 miles long, the longest bridge over a body of water, I learned. And he loved the way it looked, fading into the horizon. He considered that to be literally fading into the titular beyond, that that is uh, what you get from those scenes. That's a really cool shot. And I think there's a famous picture of Fulci on it, sitting in a director's chair. Yep, and it was even used in one of the posters for his later <laughs> his later movies. Because he was like, yeah, I look like a fucking badass on here. <laughs> and you know what? He did. <laughs> the effects were done by Germano Natale, who also did Deep Red, Suspiria, Inferno, and Opera for Argento, and had worked with Fulci on Contraband. So between the makeup and these effects that are going on, just really spectacular work all around. 
And I mentioned at the beginning how there was some funky stuff going on with the releasing and truncating the movie for an American audience. The 1981 release had made back its budget of $400,000, but then Terry Levine of Aquarius Releasing started prepping it for an American audience. And he thought that they wouldn't be into the pacing, so he replaced the score and cut several minutes to get an R rating. Now, Terry was also the distributor for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so he knew Toby Hooper, and he'd... Toby had just come off the immensely popular Poltergeist in 1982, so he said, hey, Toby, check this out, got a few quotes from him, slapped those on the ads. And so despite the differences between The Beyond and Seven Doors of Death, when it released here in 1983, it was a success. Levine estimated a secondary influx of about $700,000 plus the four hundred from before. And it was during this time that Quentin Tarantino saw and loved the movie. Presumably, he saw the actual Italian cut, and he worked to restore Fulci's vision through his Rolling Thunder release arm of Miramax and Grindhouse Releasing, getting the full movie into midnight showings in 1998 when it got a second life as a cult movie. Old Raj said about this, Midnight isn't late enough. (laughs) (laughs) It really is a great uh, midnight movie just because of how thin the story is and it's all visual and it kind of... It's short too. Yeah, not very long and it kind of lulls you in. Yeah, almost I, to a to its detriment because you could very easily fall asleep to it. But that's true. But I think that in a way that would kind of work too, just to get like shocked back into it by suddenly yeah. an intense gore effect. Just wake up to a tarantulas eating people's <laughs> eyeballs. Raj also derisively called Fulci the Italian Herschel Gordon Lewis. But I think oh, that, is that, that is that's a compliment, right? Right. Yeah, I was gonna say I think that's both apt and far more complimentary than he intended. <laughs> I, I don't disagree with him right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, and, and I'm into that. Uh, so, yeah, a popular movie. People consider this to be pretty much Fulci's masterpiece, although that does get debated here and there. So it, it is a popular cult movie. People like it, including us right here. Best horror movie ever made. Absolutely. So let's get into the actual plot, what plot there is. We're thrown right in with the hotel sign. Boom, Louisiana, 1927. <laughs> And some men approach from the lake, and a woman in the hotel has a close-up on her eyes. That'll come back. The Book of Avon, that'll come back. And a dude painting, which that'll come back. Now, there's a quote again from Larry who says, We had been given the authorization to shoot the exterior as well as the interior of this historic house. Lucio Fulci or Sergio Salvati had the idea to use the lake for the scene with the boats loaded with the angry mob with torches. This produced beautiful reflections on the water, and smoke machines provide the perfect atmosphere. In the end, a lot of these scenes were dreamed up on the spot and added as a combined work between Fulci, David Pash, who helped with the production organization, and the crew. David Pash played the leader of the gang who has the torch in his hand and leads the mob into the hotel and up the stairs. The scenes of the mob rushing inside, up the stairs, and up to the point where they start to enter the door to attack the painter to torture him is all shot in America. Then the rest of the scene where they come bursting into the room was shot in Italy with different actors of a similar build wearing the same costumes. So you get a really interesting like concept of just how seamlessly they were able to incorporate these match shots and filming in two different locations. I really like the uh, the sepia look of this uh, the epilogue. Is that the right? Prologue. <laughs> Prologue. Yeah, it's really cool. It looks great. And this woman there says it's a book of prophecies more than 4,000 years old. The seven dreaded gateways are hidden in seven cursed places. Woe to you who goes to them unprepared, because if you open it, evil will come out. And I love the shot of the sweaty guy up front watching them all storm into the hotel. <laughs> He's just like, I don't know what the fuck's happening here. And they burst into room 36 where the man is painting and they smash him in the face with chains, leaving a huge gash and saying he's cursed the town in the hotel. And like you said, you know, you kind of expect it to be like, oh, wow, we got one really intense gash on his face. That'll be the end of this. No, they keep smashing this guy with with the chains and they're ripping his flesh and everything. They're torturing him. And he says he's the only one who can save him, but they nail him to the wall and then melt him with molten something or other. <laughs> Man, that, that acid is one of my favorite. I mean, it, it's literally minutes into the movie, and it just <laughs> holds on drips of acid just falling on this dude's face, and it just falls apart. For yes. it, it holds there for a good minute, it feels like. 
oh yeah, they luxuriate in the melting model. <laughs> They're like, we put a lot of work into this, and you're going to watch every minute of it. And the tunes kick in here as the melting model is happening, and it, you know, it's it's really all working for me. Unfortunately, the wall they nailed him to is the Hellgate. <laughs> Very inconvenient. Classic mistake. <laughs> fire out of the book as we get our opening credits i think that's really cool it's again that sort of dreamlike imagery that really feels shocking even in this moment where you're like whoa there's a lot of intense stuff happening the flames leaping out of the book like that i think is a really great sort of button to hit before the credits and and let you soak in what's happened up to that point yeah there's a lot of cool touches like that we're up to 1981 now. The hotel is inherited by Lisa and is having some repairs done. But Larry the painter, which is our guy, Larry Ray, sees a spooky lady in the house and she he falls. The eyes. <laughs> <laughs> These contacts were a motherfucker, they said. Uh, they were large, soft contact lenses that first got applied. And then using a tiny suction cup, Maurizio Trani, who was head of makeup, applied the streaked, whitish, hard contact lenses over the soft one. So it's double contacts, and one of them is hard, and you can't see shit. They look painful. Yeah. I've worn contacts most of my life, and I would they do not look fun. I can't even get regular contacts in, so... Dr. McCabe comes to take him away, and they see the painting, and then room 36 calls down to the concierge, but there's nobody here. <laughs> Joe the plumber arrives to take a look at the basement, which is flooded as hell. Let's just stop Joe the plumber. <laughs> <laughs> it's classic. That's a classic American name, baby. He breaks through a brick wall, and the evil sign we saw before is there. And the water is crumbling the wall there. And I got to say, the whispering and the hand that shoots out to gouge an eye seems like a pretty evil wall. <laughs> yeah, not not too good. It didn't show up in the home inspection, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, she just inherited it. So she was like, uh, I guess. <laughs> Great shot of the bridge. This is where we're, uh, you know, seeing them drive right at camera on the on the causeway. But suddenly she sees a woman standing in the middle of the road with a seeing eye dog because her eyes are all creepy and white. It's the woman that he saw in the house uh, when he fell. Not my personal choice to stop the car at that point, but <laughs> go ahead. Do you, you, yeah. can, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> she introduces herself to Lisa as Emily. The dog is named Dickie. She says that she's been looking for her. And I would. this is one of the moments where like the, the plot being nebulous was like, I, she was like, I... She seems like she's saying she gave up the hotel, which is why it passed to Lisa. And so I was like, are they supposed to be related? Like, is that supposed to be like an ancestor of hers or something? Or uh, I, I wasn't sure. But it, it really doesn't matter. So, yeah, so. I, I, don't, I don't think I've put more than like 10 minutes of thought into actually what the plot of this movie is. Yeah. I just like to kind of live in it. Down in the basement, a staff member is looking for Joe and finds him all fucked up and leaking some kind of orange goo from his mouth, which that's not ideal. <laughs> he sinks below the water, and who should emerge from the water but the guy from earlier who got melted. Holy shit. <laughs> Big recovery. Big recovery. <laughs> At the morgue, they're sewing up Joe, but they're like, this other corpse is remarkably well-preserved for someone that's been dead for 50 years, which... <laughs> No, it's not. That thing looks like it's completely dis disintegrated. It's like total shit. Yeah. But also the guy wants to hook it up to the brainwave machine, which shows a few pulses. <laughs> in the hospital, Mrs. The Plumber goes in to see the corpse and gets acided to death while her daughter watches. A lot of people melting in this movie. It's a big ask for one melt, but when you get two, I mean, that's just, that's your ticket admission price right there. Absolutely. You know, everyone talks about the eye trauma from Fulci, but this, the, the really letting you soak in the acid melting people's faces, that's what's really doing it for me in this movie, to be honest. Yeah, it, it, it's truly just fun to watch. It's yeah. gross. and Yeah, it's great and creepy, and the blood pool chases the daughter, and it's all foamy and gross looking. <laughs> It fades out after she opens a freezer and another Joe falls out, maybe? <laughs> I think it's him because of the gouged out eye, but 
truly, like I said, doesn't matter. Could be any corpse. <laughs> Lisa is chatting with Dr. McCabe about how she wants to stay, but Arthur and Martha are a hindrance that she can't fire because they came with the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> hate it when that happens. Yeah, I hate when that happens, too. So frustrating. Servants. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. McCabe has never even heard of them. What the heck? Could they be ghosts? <laughs> we go to a funeral for Joe the Plumber and Mrs. the Plumber, and the kid did survive the falling corpse, but she raises her eyes, and they're completely white! Ah! Again, sort of this idea of the unjustness of life blinding her. Uh, you know, it is... Uh, there, there is at least something going on for themes. You know, it's, it, I, I like that there is spare plot, or it's sparse on the plot, but I like that there is at least something to kind of hold on to and, and uh, get something out of it instead of just being like a montage of gore effects. <laughs> yeah, he uh, or Fulci, he, I think he probably enjoyed having less plot to deal with to be able to kind of uh, put in his like dark, just real foreboding themes that, I mean, by the end, it's just really bleak and yeah. pretty indicative of his thoughts on life. Just a lot of... <laughs> just really depressing imagery. <laughs> <laughs> There's more whispering in the hotel, and it's a reflection of Emily. Why didn't you listen, Lisa? We wanted to spare you. She says, 50 years ago, everyone in the hotel disappeared. The painter's name was Spike, and he found the key to the gate, and his spirit has come back to the hotel. Lisa says she doesn't believe in ghosts, but when Emily touches the painting, her hands come away drenched in blood, and she runs out into the fog, and I really laughed to see the seeing-eye dog chasing after her. <laughs> like, what is this guy doing here? She's like, I know the way. That's why it doesn't matter that I don't need the seeing-eye dog, but it's it just seeing him chase after her is very funny. <laughs> The next morning, Lisa finds the Book of Avon, which, by the way, maybe looks like it's bound in human skin? It's never really discussed, but looks like it. There, there's a good chance um, in the canon of movies, those types of books are usually of questionable nature. So Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking this is a, a classic Necronomicon type. And uh, she's drawn to a closet, then finds the freaking body of Spike nailed to a wall. Thunder crashes. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when that happens. You find a body and it starts storming inside. <laughs> Man. Yeah, it, dude. It's every other week, it feels like. Unbelievable. <laughs> but suddenly McCabe bursts through the door, and it's back to reality, which I also like as kind of this, like, way to shock you back in. She gets shocked back in, too. And they go to look, and there's nothing there except the nails. <laughs> McCabe also says that he doesn't know Emily. There's no blind girl, and he knows everyone around here. But I did think it was interesting that Lisa says her house is by the crossroads, which is typically a meeting place for the dang devil. So there you go. Little, everything kind of plays into something. <laughs> the book is gone. Lisa thinks she sees it in a store, but when she checks it out, it's a different book, and she passes on it despite the incredibly weird laughing clerk's encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> the, so many of these Italian movies, and I feel like specifically Fulci, there's just like one or two side characters that are on screen for like 30 seconds, and they they have really entertaining dubs to them and it just like steals it just because they're <laughs> just really funny voices it's like where did the who did they get to do this and why did they think that it was good enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're like i got 30 seconds in this movie and i'm gonna make the damn most of it <laughs> and it, that's just one of the characteristics that adds to it for me some may think it's like cheesy or corny but it kind of adds to the heightened everything sensibilities about these yeah the guy who was doing repairs on the house also says that he's going to go to City Hall and get the original plans for the house. And there's a funny moment where the city employee is like, we just went on strike for three weeks to have a guaranteed lunch hour at noon, so I can't stay, so get it yourself, have fun, bye. <laughs> it's like, all right, sure. Power to the worker. Yeah. It's at this point in the movie that we finally learn the name of the hotel. <laughs> Which is Hotel Seven Doors. So, <laughs> you know, that's not suspicious at all. And this dude looks at the plans and is immediately struck by indoor lightning. <laughs> <laughs> and he falls off the ladder to the ground. And this is when the, the gross spiders emerge. 
And thanks to the new visual clarity, you can see a few that are obviously fakes, and it's really funny. But also, by and large, it is creepy to see the real ones climbing on him. Yeah, and the real ones do. I mean, I feel like a lot of people are scared of spiders, and it's just kind of kind of eerie to imagine yourself in that situation. Uh, just kind of like makes your skin crawl a little bit. Yeah, literally. And they tear at his face. Uh, pretty nasty, especially since he's still blinking and alive for a while. Yeah, it, this is one of the um, aforementioned eye torture scenes that he's famous for. That's right. Although, also, the tongue is pretty nasty, too. Oh, yeah. Rip out the tongue. I always forget about that, where it just bites into the tongue and yanks on it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so gross. The plans vanish from the book, which is also very fun. McCabe goes to visit Emily's house, and it seems to be abandoned. He busts in, and it's all jacked up, but he does find the book there. And back at the hotel, it's disgusting when the lady sticks her hand in the tub of sludge. That's the grossest part of this movie for me. (laughs) (laughs) And the water drains to reveal a damn zombie! Gotta clean the tub every once in a while. (laughs) Zombies will grow in there if you don't. (laughs) It rises up, eyes slashed out, or slashed shut, or whatever. Really cool look. And he shoves the woman onto one of the nails in the wall so hard that this tiny nail pokes her eye out from the back. I, I love that <laughs> gag. It, it's so cartoony looking and yeah. just looks like the cartoon wolf <laughs> eyes popping out of its skull. Yeah, Tex Avery action. <laughs> Emily feels a spirit in her house that also plays the piano a little bit. That's funny. <laughs> the spirit's like, <laughs> for a lease happening over here. <laughs> but the corpse breathes at her from the window. And she falls, crawling on the floor until she reaches another body. And one of my favorite shots in this whole movie is this amazing reveal where we finally get the wide shot of the room, and it's full of corpses and, like, framed from this weird angle from, like, the top. I think it's so spectacular looking. Dickie doesn't react as she screams, you can't take me back, I did what was asked, which fucking rut row <laughs> on both ends. <laughs> but he does attack when she commands him to. Get rid of them. Defend me, Dickie. And he's tearing them up. But suddenly, the growling stops. And he comes back to her, covered in blood. Then when she says, good boy, Dickie, you made them go away, he lunges for her throat, tearing it open, and then tears off her ear, too, for good measure. (laughs) This is one that stuck out to me on this watch, where the throat is enough, and it lingers on that for a while. Yeah. And then and then he goes for the ear, and it's just like, oh, God. <laughs> that one was just for him. <laughs> it is amazing, though. And it's a very cool scene because, like you say, it's incredibly visceral. But additionally, it is an indicator that there is no escape from the inevitable, you know, playing into that uh, Fulci vision again. And the evil can even control pets, which are classically the symbol of man's best friend, and use it to destroy us. There is no getting away from this. Back at the hotel, Arthur leaps from the water, Jason the Frog Boy style. (laughs) He attacks Lisa, and she gets away, though she's terrified, and heard the bell ringing again. And once again, McCabe has to sort of shock her out of it. And he says the house has been empty for 50 years, and he thinks she went there and left the book for him to read. He also tells her what he read, which is that the hotel is a gateway to hell, and the gateway opens spraying blood at them and collapsing the basement. And flood water starts to become blood as well, and the painting leaks blood too. A lot of blood in this here movie. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of leaks in that basement. <laughs> Just a lot of, everything is bad. Bad house to inherit. <laughs> Shadows in the windows as they flee the hotel rocks. That's a really fun little touch, as you see the like spirits taking, taking over in there. I also love that he's like, strange, there isn't a soul in sight as they drive to the hospital, and they said it took a lot of cash to get everyone off the streets. (laughs) (laughs) But it does look cool and very eerie, and they run into the hospital building, still nobody, but suddenly, zombies burst through the window and attack! What the heck? (laughs) I will say, kind of the, one of the differences between Fulci and Romero is... Romero's zombies, while they're very kind of slow and lumbering, they they at least seem to have some sort of interest in attacking the survivors. <laughs> and Fulci's, yeah. Fulci's zombies 
like I, I'm not even convinced they're there to to hurt anybody because they just kind of <laughs> they're just kind of standing there like lumbering even slower somehow. Yeah, yeah, they really are. And McCabe draws a gun and he fends them off until he's out of ammo. Although it does somehow magically get reloaded at some. <laughs> I, I noticed that again. He because it, it makes a point to show you that he is out of ammo and he almost yeah. like throws the gun away, but then <laughs> is able to keep firing. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> he does the the trope of taking a few body shots to then shoot them in the head, but then he starts shooting them in the body again, even <laughs> though the one headshot has proven to incapacitate them. He's just, just terrible. He's bad aim. <laughs> and he's he is probably shooting them from like less than two feet away <laughs> and still choosing to not shoot the head. And as you say, they're not exactly moving at a sprint here. <laughs> he runs into his buddy Harris, who attacks with a bone saw, but he's not completely gone yet. But he, there is a cool, like, oh, I was kind of possessed by the evil, too. And then, yeah, somehow McCabe has more ammo, but Harris gets glassed in the face from an exploding door. Big rip to him. That's an amazing effect. I, I don't even know... I was trying to think the physics of how... It seemed like the glass would have gone the other way, but it comes towards him i can't remember if i saw it right or not it doesn't matter (laughs) but it looks amazing and yeah just it it's really cool how they do a lot of these things and some of them a lot of the stuff does look a little dated but there's some stuff that really does hold up even in high definition definitely Meanwhile, Lisa is in what they call the lab, but I called it the morgue earlier. Who can say? (laughs) It definitely looks like a morgue more than a lab. (laughs) The little girl is there crying on the floor, but as you'll recall, she's evil now. McCabe goes for the elevator and finds both of the women there, but they're surrounded by zombies, so they head back to the lab, which I thought was funny, too. And one of the guys in the body bags comes back and grabs Lisa, which is funny, and he's quickly domed by McCabe. But then they find Spike in a closet. While McCabe shoots at Spike, again, shooting him in the gut instead of in the head, (laughs) the daughter, the little girl, uh, reveals her true nature, tries to kill Lisa, but McCabe spins around and craters her face. Truly an insane effect. <laughs> that That is an awesome headshot. I, I, I'm pretty sure I rewound that just because of how it's really quick and it's almost like blink and you miss it. But it like, I mean, the top of her skull is gone. <laughs> this is one of those ones where I have a list on Letterboxd about like exploding prop skulls and stuff. And sometimes I debate whether a gunshot can count for that list and movies like this really make me want to be like i feel like maybe this should go on the list because it is basically a head explosion oh yeah also practical effects no cgi in this house (laughs) (laughs) but they run away and find themselves back in the basement what the hell (laughs) i love that i really love that they're just like there again that rules to me yeah They walk towards the gate, which is all foggy now, and they find themselves in hell. Very interesting portrayal of hell, I think. You know, it's not your typical sort of thing. It's all sandy and washed out, more depressing than, like, uh, a flame. (laughs) It reminds me of, like, kind of Dante's Inferno type interpretation. Mm -hmm. Less less flames and... I guess uh, just like active suffering and more just like, man, this place is <laughs> just <laughs> awful to be. <laughs> yeah, this is this was like the third layer of hell. And it does look like the painting, although the painting has some like plausible deniability of being mountain ranges. <laughs> <laughs> the bodies in hell are supposedly homeless men paid in alcohol. Yeah, that, specifically, they wouldn't lay down long enough if they weren't given alcohol. <laughs> God bless, you know? These our, our couple here goes blind as their names are whispered over and over, and they fade away. Credits roll on the painting, baby. <laughs> I, I really love it. I think it's a really fun ending. Like you said, it is very bleak for them to just be like, wow, there is no escape. This is inevitable. Mankind goes to hell, and uh, evil is overpowering and will track you down. So the end, says Fulci. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think another big distinction between uh, Fulci and Romero's uh, Of the Dead movies 
Um, those are more, I mean, as much as they can be, they are somewhat grounded and there's very much a, we might be able to survive this thing type of vibe. And it's still considered, I I think they still kind of consider it the end of the world or so, or the apocalypse or whatever, but Fulci's movies, you're pretty much fucked from the start. (laughs) You're, you're pretty much on a course that is going to end where it ends no matter what and no matter what you do it's just gonna end up there yeah i love that and now austin we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie but is in fact the best horror movie ever made especially compared to the heights of terror train (laughs) and i'm gonna let you start i'll start by reading this just this short quip that i found and i I think it is actually referring to zombie too but it's apt for this as well it says i'm reading this from it's called the book of the dead it's a like a zombie textbook essentially a really cool book um it says if hustler magazine merged with mortuary management monthly this might be the result i think (laughs) i think that's a good description of a lot of Italian movies, just a lot of a lot of TNA, but it's also like some of the grossest stuff you'll see. <laughs> just a, a really weird mix that kind of leaves you uncomfortable. Although I don't think there's any nudity in this movie, particularly. No, yeah, there there isn't in this one, but it, by and large, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but and it this one makes up for it in the gore. I would say, um, <laughs> yes. just the gore per minute is extremely high, unprecedented. Uh, but yeah, I, I love the the New Orleans setting, and it really really showcases it. It's not just kind of a hey, we're we're here, and it just kind of ignores it. Like it does let you know that it's New Orleans. The soundtrack is incredible. When when you hear the main theme, it's kind of hard to get out of your head, and it, it's really haunting. And I, I I love the setting in movies of like like houses or hotels. This one, I mean, I guess you could say it's haunted in a way, but it's not like a typical ghost haunting, really. But that's a real, I love that trope. It's a fun one. A lot of good stuff comes from stuff like that. Yeah. Like we've said, the gore is incredible. That skull explosion just (laughs) sticks in your head. I mean, nothing really quite like any of this. And it's just probably. I've thought about it a lot, and it's definitely one of my favorite horror movies, and it's probably transcended that just to movies in general, just because I think it's a perfect horror movie, really. Um, and yeah, it's like a just a great thing to watch late at night and just kind of haze out to it. and <laughs> Soak it in, baby. Yeah, just kind of live in the plotlessness and... <laughs> And the visual images of of the hellscape at the end. It, it's just really cool. And, yeah. and I, I don't think you mentioned it, but there was a proposed sequel called Beyond the Beyond that starts where the first one ends. Wow. Of course, that never happened, but that would have been a really cool <laughs> yeah. premise for a movie starting out in hell or wherever they are. Yeah, yeah, they're in hell, and the hell gate is clearly open, so we get to see sort of the the rest of the world fall to pieces. I think that would be a really cool idea. Yeah, all those all those ramblings uh, summed up is why it's the best horror horror movie of all time. Hell yeah! To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because, like you said, it is a perfect encapsulation of haunted houses and zombie movies slammed together, and the icing on the cake is the incredible gore you know zombie movies really lend themselves to that sort of thing day of the dead dawn of the dead both have some great savini effects and everything but this really it goes beyond what typical zombie gore is because the zombies kind of don't come into play until the very end and what the rest of the stuff that's happening is all incredible i also love that we as audience and the characters get punished for daring to ask what's going on. <laughs> you know, if you check out the blueprint of the house, you get fucking exploded and tarantula 
<laughs> or or you look into the key and you get your face melted off and, and taken to hell. And we as an audience, if you ask what's going on and you you get hung up on what's happening specifically, the nitty gritty of it, then you're punished by not enjoying the movie as much because that's not what it's really about. It's more of this kind of tone poem where it is bleak and interesting and and really sweeps you up in the feeling of it. It is atmosphere captured into 90 minutes. It is so fantastic. I love it. I think the effects like we've been gushing about the entire time unreal. The acting I think is pretty fine for this kind of movie where uh you know like you said they usually film and then do a dub later and everything i think that the performances are pretty solid in this one compared to a lot of other uh, italian horror movies that i've seen where that's not usually the focus and it's not the focus here either but they just happen to be hitting it at a higher level and uh, and i think that fulci uh you know he he died before he really got to embrace any of his success and uh, I think that's a shame, because this is the best horror movie ever made, and he, he should have got to see it called such. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, th- this is definitely one of the better entry points for people, I would say. You may, I, th- I think a lot of people have different Fulci favorites, but this it's a very accessible, it's short, it's got great effects, and it's got a lot going for it, and it's kind of an easy sell for somebody who's not familiar with the Italian genre tropes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Austin, this was so much fun, man. I want to thank you for coming on the show and giving me an opportunity to rewatch this gem. Uh, please tell the people uh, any plugs that you might have. Go check out Central Cinema, all that jazz. Yeah, it, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, so I work with uh, Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. So if you're around that way, come on out and watch uh, some good movies with us. Yeah, you guys do new stuff and repertory stuff, so a lot of a lot of cool stuff. Correct. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the cool stuff that's been coming out recently, like Everything Everywhere All at Once, things like that. We've had we've got Men by Alex Garland showing right now and i also work with the knoxville horror film fest uh, pretty much one of the same with central cinema but so far for this year's horror fest in october we've announced uh, from beyond and reanimator hell yeah we'll have i believe those will be at the maryville drive-in nearby that's kind of a recent thing we've been doing is starting out at the drive-in and it, we've really loved it it would, we had to do it out of necessity due to covid and it was really kind of a blessing because it, it's nice. just been a really good experience there. And it lets us get more people and have a really cool, huge screen and get that drive-in atmosphere. Sounds really fun. I mean, I'm sure that people who are around there will have a great time if they check it out. I would love to check it out myself. So who knows? Maybe come October, I'll be uh, taking a trip. That's it. I mean, as far as my plugs... Little Horror PHL on Twitter. Uh, that username applies pretty much everywhere, including Instagram and Letterboxd, but I'm pretty much mostly on uh, Twitter versus Instagram, so if you really want to engage, that's the place to do it. Mailbag. Send in your questions and stuff to bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com. Rate and review the show five stars if you're enjoying it. I mean, you listen to podcasts. You know how this all works. Do the stuff, people. It really helps. Um, and uh, check out the Patreon because there's all kinds of really fun episodes and bonus episodes. And we've also been trying to do more commentaries in addition to the bonus episodes, including Austin as part of uh, Shit Club, which is a, a B-movie celebration. <laughs> uh, and, and him and our buddy Andrew, who you might know from the legal thriller episode that he was on if you're already a patron we've been doing some really fun commentaries for movies like alligator and hard rock zombies so check those out if you're interested in in hearing us chat with the movie instead of just about it that's it for me thanks everyone bye bye